Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hey folks, hello and welcome to episode 4-435 of the Run Run Live podcast. So here we are, mid-July in New England, and all that, that brings with it. The deer flies are as thick as college students on a Florida beach. The days are long and the weather is a dirty soup-like mixture that drains the sap right out of you when you're outside. And people are slowing down a bit now. We're in midsummer, easing off to vacation houses for a bit of uh, lockdown in a different place, I suppose. Ollie and I have been getting out for eight or so miles in the woods three days a week. Then I've been mixing in a long bike ride on Saturdays with a longish run on Sunday mornings. And my legs are tired, but I have a good cadence going. Even with only four days of running, I'll end up with over 40 miles this week, so I'm catching up on the great virtual race across Tennessee. I should pass the buzzard uh, this week, even with taking that week off. So there you go. You can do it. This week, and I am speaking to you from Sunday afternoon now, this week I ran Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday in the woods with Ollie, Saturday, I talked my running buddies into riding the great Circumgraten Fondo with me. That was yesterday. And it ended up being 37-ish easy road bike miles in the sun. It was a hoot. And we stopped for muffins about halfway around in Pepperell Center. <laughs> so that'll give you an idea of the intensity with that we were bringing to that workout. It was a muffin workout. And I guess I have to back up a bit and explain this all to you. So... If you've been paying attention. So my friend Gordon, who Gordon probably shows up in some really early podcasts because he used to run train with me back in the early 2000s. But Gordon, who is my friend Frank's brother, and I run with Frank every Sunday. So anyhow, Gordon had this idea a couple years back of setting up a relay race that went all the way around Groton, the town I grew up in and where my running club is based, without actually touching Groton at any point. And so I bor borrowed his, oh, I almost went Canadian there, I borrowed his course, and we rode it on bikes yesterday. 
So I toyed with making it into a real event for charity and yada, 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 but there wasn't much interest, and I didn't really want to do any heavy lifting on this, so we just went out and had a good long ride with my buddies. And then this morning I got up early, which I get up early every morning. I have no choice. Ollie gets up at 5. So I got up with Ollie, and we went out and ran four and a half miles in the trails, and then I drove over to the next town over from me, which is Ayr, Massachusetts. And interestingly, there's a uh, a famous army base there called Devons. And it's been eh, pretty much 100% decommissioned now. They still have some National Guard there. But uh, there's a lot of empty space and big roads because the base used to be there. And they always had great infrastructure. So anyhow, I went over and met the guys over there at 8 for another 10 miles on the road. Nice mix. Done by 10 o'clock, and I'm pretty whipped. I could nap, but I'm not going to. So I'm getting a good balance, a good balanced set of miles in, and I am avoiding most of the heat, and I'm giving the dog enough exercise to stay sane, so it's all good. Last weekend, Ollie and I went down to our Cape House for the 4th of July, and I ended up coming back early. I came back on Saturday because it was just too crowded and frantic. And I didn't even attempt to do my annual beach run uh, or my long ride on the rail trail. And maybe I'm turned into a hermit, but I was just a little bit disconcerted by all the people and how stressed out everyone was. So I came back. So today we're going to talk about bodily fluids, all kinds of bodily fluids. It's bodily fluid day. <laughs> no, actually, we're going to talk about the athlete's gut with Dr. Patrick Wilson. It's his new book from Velo Press that answers the questions around why do I get nauseous or gassy or poopy when I'm out running and racing. And then in section one, I'm going to talk about sweat because I realized that my half-hearted treatment of hot weather running was a bit thin. So we'll talk a little bit more about sweat. And in section two, I'll talk about why certainty in an uncertain environment is very powerful. Yeah. So my work, my work is very busy, but I'm having a really good summer. I'm being very successful. And I actually threw my hat into the ring for another role at this company last week. So I have an interview tomorrow. How about that? Yeah. And I know there's a lot of job seekers out there. So, you know, these days, a lot of people out of work doing interviews. So I have an interview tip for you. There will come a point in that interview where you will get a hard question or something that you don't know the answer to. And when you do, you lean back. You get a faraway look in your eyes. You channel your inner Rutger Howard and say, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched Sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time like tears in the rain. Now that won't get you the job, but you'll be the topic of conversation in HR for weeks. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Let's talk about sweat, baby. Isn't that a modern lover's song? Let's talk about sweat. Since we're 
all about bodily fluids here today on the Run Run Live podcast, I wanted to talk a bit about sweat. You may think sweat is fairly straightforward, but all these things that happen in our bodies are complex dances of many influences. And I would imagine all of you are familiar with sweat. When you exercise in the heat, you sweat. Your body moves blood to the skin. You're, you sweat, and that sweat is in the form of water and salts. And when that sweat evaporates, it absorbs 500 kilocalories per mole, which, trust me, is an astounding amount of energy. And this is in the form of heat, so it's taking that heat away. Sweating is very efficient. Now, you know you need to take in fluids and salt to make up for this sweat, but how much? When? Well, way back when, in the beginning of the running boom, the advice, as cringeworthy as it seems today, was to drink. Drink a lot of water. Drink a lot of sports drink. Don't wait until you're thirsty. Drink. Keep on top of your hydration. Get plenty of electrolytes. Your body needs electrolytes. And plants, I've been told, love electrolytes. Yeah, you do have to work around the fluid and the salt loss during long workouts, but it's not as simple as you were probably told. So electrolytes. What are electrolytes? It's more than just salt. So you can't just throw table salt down your throat. Electrolytes are a mix of sodium, chloride, potassium, and other trace elements that help your cells function. One very important thing that the electrolytes facilitate is that transmission of fluids and fuels across cell membranes. So the difference between the inside of a cell and the outside of the cell, right, the difference in electrolyte level will cause fluids and stuff, even electrolytes, to be pulled in one direction or the other. And that's why if you get unbalanced, if you take too much of one thing, like water, it screws up that transmission across cell membranes, this osmosis, which is both chemical and an electrical process, and it really screws you up, right? That's what makes you sick. The breakdown of the electrical processes at the cellular level and due to these imbalances, that's what causes the cramping as well. So it really, uh, it's all inter interrelated here. So your body, though, your body does a great job with keeping these things in balance. But it can get overwhelmed when you're out for a long time and you're not fueling well, right? So contrary to the old, old advice, hey, I got a bird in here with me. Contrary to the old advice, what your fueling strategy is attempting to do is to maintain this balance as well as possible over the course of that long outing, over the course of that exercising. So another question is, how much do you sweat? This, it turns out, is a very personal question. Sweat rates are affected by many factors. You, yes you, have your own personal sweat rate. That's your baseline. And you, yes you, will react differently to different influences than the athlete next to you. Now, I always thought I was a heavy sweater, right? I was a good sweater, a proficient sweater. But I'm probably right in the middle of the normal range. How do I know this? Because I have measured my sweat rate. I have a baseline. I have experience. The average person sweats between 25 to 50 ounces an hour during exercise. 
that's like one or two bike bottles. And that's a big range, right? That's a that's 100% variability there. So it's typically towards the bottom end of this, like 20 to 30 to 40 ounces an hour. Now, the highest recorded sweat rate, those are up to close to four liters an hour. That's that's like a gallon an hour. Pardon my... Uh, <laughs> My uh, estimations there, my broad broad strokes of estimation. It's like a big milk jug full of sweat. There's a lot of things that influence your sweat rate, obviously. The temperature, the humidity, the intensity of the exercise, all that stuff's going to vary your sweat rate greatly. And how do you check your sweat rate? Well, very easy. You weigh yourself, naked, of course. You got to weigh yourself naked. Get on that treadmill, but not naked. Get dressed first. Work out for an hour at your normal sort of low zone three casual pace, right? Your normal pace. Get off that treadmill. Get out of those sweaty clothes. Get naked again. Go weigh yourself. Subtracting anything you drank during that hour or eliminated. This is the bodily fluid cast during that hour. That's your baseline, right? That's your sweat rate. That'll tell you what your sweat rate is. So your, your baseline room temperature, average intensity, sweat rate. And for me, that's going to be about 20 ounces. If you want to get some other data points, do the same test. Do it on a hot day. Do it on a cold day. Do it outside. Do it at a high intensity when you do that tempo run. Do it at low intensity when you're doing a zone two run, right? Take different samples and learn what your sweat rates are. Now you can use that information to figure out what you need to fuel over the course of a workout or event. And obviously, this is going to vary with intensity and across sports, too. If you're a multi-sport athlete, you sweat different when you bike, when you run, when you swim. One thing to remember is that you don't have to be perfect. People get really wrapped up in this fluid replacement stuff. Your body's good enough at this business to be able to still operate a bit dehydrated or even a little overhydrated, so... Don't sweat the details too much. See, I couldn't resist that. If you try to take in too much, that can lead to nausea, other problems. Many times, towards the end of a race, I'll actually ditch my bottle because I know it won't make a bit of difference in the last 30 to 40 minutes in the way I'm going to perform, right? There's just not enough time for that fluid or that nutrition to get to my muscles. On a hot day, my sweat rate is going to double or more. So for most of my runs, I carry a single 20 to 24 ounce bottle and I'll be good for an hour and a half. In hot weather, that's not enough. At a higher intensities, that's not enough. My baseline is like 20 plus ounces an hour. But even at that rate, even if I'm able to get down that much in a race, in a hard marathon, I'll end up six to eight pounds lighter at the end of the race. That's a gallon less fluids in my body at the end of a race, even though I'm pumping in 20 to 24 an hour. So the bad news is that just like your sweat rate, your your ability to absorb fluids and nutrients is also specific to you. Yes, you. Some athletes can't absorb enough fluids to keep up. Some can cram fluids and fuel and have no problem. It's something that you need to practice and experiment with. Now, you have to be mindful of your sweat rate going into a long workout. You have to experiment with different forms of fluids and nutrition. Uh, For the electrolytes, I have found 
that an electrolyte supplement every 10K or every hour or so in a race makes a big difference on my ability to be able to race when I get late in the race. In hot weather, I might double up on that and take two electrolyte supplements an hour. And these are really common. You can buy these at Whole Foods, Endurolytes or S-caps. They all basically have the same mixture of electrolytes and potassium and sodium chlorides and trace elements. But I have also raced successfully on a lot of different fuels, including the old plain old Gatorade in the old days. It's really a personal preference and something you have to work with. Which brings me and you to the biggest advice that I have. Figure it out. Don't let somebody else, especially a vendor, tell you what your fueling and hydration strategy should be. Do a little bit of research. Know your baselines. Then experiment around those baselines. And there's probably two big reasons I'm able to race well on a variety of fuels. The first one is that my body... I know what it does. I know how it reacts. And that's specific to me. And I've had years to observe how it reacts to what. And the second thing is that I practiced all this fueling throughout my training campaigns. Your body can be trained. Experiment. Make mistakes. See what happens. Stay safe. Stay hydrated, my friends. And now for today's featured interview. So, Patrick, why don't you give me the 200 words on who you are and what you do and what we're talking about here? Sure. So, I'm Dr. Patrick Wilson. I am a faculty member at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia, and I've got a background in dietetics. So, I'm a registered dietitian. I don't actually practice as an RD anymore, really, but I do have that credential from my undergraduate degree. And then uh, after I finished my undergraduate degree in dietetics, I did graduate school at the University of Minnesota, so a master's in exercise physiology, and then a PhD in basically kind of the same thing, exercise physiology. Did a postdoc in Nebraska for a year, focused on sport nutrition, and I've been at Old Dominion University since 2015, so about five years. And yeah, I study sport nutrition, how uh, athletes are impacted by the things they eat, and the choices they make, in particular reference to uh, gastrointestinal function and symptoms. So that's definitely a chunk of my research is spent on the gut and the way that athletes can maybe improve their chances of, of having success during competition and training by avoiding gut problems, which are very common, especially among the endurance athlete population. So are you an endurance athlete yourself? I grew up running cross country. I was kind of always not the top 10, 15%. I was maybe the top third or half. I ran half marathons through college. I don't run a huge volume anymore simply because my body doesn't seem to handle the mileage particularly well, but I still run a couple days per week or a few days per week in addition yeah. to remaining active. So Yeah, so you get to practice what you preach. I'm not, not anything crazy, not a ultra marathon or anything like that, but I still hit the pavement. So your whole job is figuring out why we get those problems in these races, right? <laughs> and how we can do better. Yeah, that's definitely the impetus for writing this book, The Athlete's Gut, was to try and come up with a go-to resource for athletes to kind of start and try and identify what some of their problems may be. Because as you kind of mentioned, 
it's really problematic for some runners. And if you run long enough, if you do enough competitions, at some point you're going to struggle with a gut issue. It's almost inevitable for uh, every athlete to run into this problem at some point. So I think, you know, it's helpful for them to understand what are some of the potential causes because that can help dictate what you choose to use as a solution. And one thing I like point out is that gut problems can be very different. So there's not a one size fits all solution that's going to work for everybody. Yeah. And I like these guys at Velo Press because I always manage to dig out something different. So this is sort of a different look at this. It's not 100% a scientific tome, right? You tried to lighten it up to make it uh, general enough for folks to be able to get into it and read it. But you're trying to answer the big question, which is, okay, why am I getting sick and how do I don't get sick or why is my performance being hindered by this and how do I not do it right? And it turns out there's no simple answer, which is probably why we keep asking the questions, right? But a lot of people look for a fairly straightforward approach to some of this stuff. I don't want to give the impression that the book doesn't have any practical advice. It does, but you're right in that I try and convey the fact that it can be complicated. In many situations, it's not just one thing that causes gut problems. It can be a a mixture of things at the same time. So for example, you might have a runner who's suffering from high level of pre-race anxiety, uh, mixed with poor nutritional choices, mixed with they're taking non-sterile anti-inflammatory drugs. So in that situation, it could be a combination of a few different things that could be contributing to the problem. So right. trying to just give a whole array of different possibilities for athletes to look at. And I think what's unique about the book is that it does it kind of on a symptom-by-symptom basis because gut distress is not just one symptom. It's any number of things from nausea to reflux to fullness to cramping to the runner's trots to things in between. Yep. And uh, I think that's a key takeaway though, right? Because I think a lot of the messaging you get from the vendors in the space and even the, the old guys like me, right? It tends to be black and white advice. Don't do this and it'll take care of the problem. Whereas I think the big takeaway for me here is that it depends, right? And it's very athlete specific as well. So yeah. here's your column A of things that could cause column B symptom. Now you got to work it out for you. What's right. the connection? Yeah. Yeah. So you look at something like nausea is very common, especially during ultra endurance exercise. Also during like track and field, you know, anybody's done a 400 meter or 800 meter race, you know, uh, I was probably pretty familiar with feeling nauseated afterwards and even sometimes throwing up. So what you do to maybe reduce the chances of nausea is going to be different from how you might handle the runner's trots or from gas and bloating. The origins of those two symptoms can be quite different. So you don't want to take just a, again, one size fits all approach to fix those problems because you are not uh, potentially going to have success if you're not taking, again, this more symptom-by-symptom approach. And what you're doing matters as well. So like you said, a 400-meter a repeat or a cross-country race at 100% or near 100% effort is going to do a different thing to the body than a 200-mile ultra event, yeah. right? Yeah, so both of those examples of exercise are associated with a high prevalence of nausea. But in the sprinting example or the 400 meter dash or the 800 meter run, it's probably a lot to do with kind of the stress hormone release, the adrenaline response that you get with that sort of competition. 
that triggers the nausea in the brain. Whereas yep. with the prolonged ultra stuff, that can maybe play a role, but it's probably a bunch of other stuff like right. we're likely to be substantially dehydrated. You've got muscle breakdown products floating around in your blood. You've got other hormones that are secreted at a high rate. So it's just even a single symptom can have different causes in, in different situations. So, you know, right. I don't want to make it overly complex, but at least give readers the impression that it's not, oh, you just take a probiotic or, oh, you just stop eating this type of food and it'll be good to go. That usually isn't uh, what's going to lead to long-term success. Yeah, but that's the truth, right? It's not prescriptive, right? And yeah. I think by looking at it this way, you'll keep people from making or at least slow down people making the other mistakes people make here, which is listening to somebody who's selling some supplement that says, oh, no, 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 all you need to do is take these three pills and everything will be fine, right? Yeah, I mean, if not only just for gastrointestinal function and athletes, but for everything else, that's true when it comes to performance and recovery and training. I mean, there's a, a whole industry there that is looking to sell things, you know, make a quick buck. I'm not completely opposed to supplements. I go through them in the book and try and talk about the research and give a balanced perspective in terms of when they may or may not work for athletes. But yeah, taking a probiotic, for example, is for most people not going to be the solution to completely eliminate the chances that they're going to have gut problems. It might have some modest effects in some situations, but definitely not a cure-all. Yeah. So if you look at those those short duration uh, intensity that we were talking about, right? And I've watched the end of these races where the kids, they fall across the finish line and start throwing up, right? Is it similar to like when you you smash your thumb with a hammer and you feel a little nauseous, right? Because you get this big release of sort of defensive chemicals into your brain. Yeah. Stimulates that nausea, right? Yeah. The, so the, the evidence that it is kind of like a it's, stress. It's almost like a trauma. Yeah. In a way, I mean, it's so the stress hormones that are released, whether it's a 400 meter run or a job interview, or you're going skydiving and jumping out of a plane, or you're on a first date, a uh, blind date or something like that, those hormones can get into your brain and activate what's called the chemoreceptor trigger zone, which communicates with uh, what's called the nausea center and vomiting center. Uh, but there's good evidence that these stress hormones like adrenaline, when they're released in large amounts, can be important contributor to the nausea. So a 400-meter dash, for example, you get a huge stress hormone release with that. I mean, any high-intensity right. exercise. Yeah. Combine that with like pre-race anxiety, uh, especially in younger people where maybe the stress hormone uh, release is even more potent than in older individuals. And you can maybe start to understand why you see uh, nausea and vomiting being a fairly common sight after some of those races. My favorite example of a scientific study that tied the stress hormone release to nausea and vomiting is, uh, it was kind of a case series on it was eight or nine individuals who had these tumors cause hypersecretion of these stress hormones like adrenaline. And these individuals really calmly experienced exercise associated nausea. And removing those growths or tumors in most of those cases reduced the problems they were having. So that's pretty good uh, evidence that uh, combined with other sources of, of information that yes, that's going to be an important contributor. Yep. And in terms of that, that's sort of like an isolated incident, right? So I mean, you get done your 5k, you feel a little nauseous, or you walk around a little bit, and you're okay, or you throw up and you're okay, right? I think in some cases, nausea, and even vomiting may be inevitable for some athletes, especially when you do the higher intensity sprinting. I'm trying to think of a way logically you would reduce the chances of that happening. You could uh, maybe do some relaxation stuff before the competition. 
The downside, though, is we don't know if that actually would have a negative effect on performance in those situations. Because in, in some respects, yeah. we do want to be amped up. So, right. yeah, I think to some extent, people who are doing sprinting and those middle distance events in track and field uh, during races and competitions, it's maybe something you just kind of have to live with to a degree. There are other supplements and drugs that have reduced nausea in other populations, but using supplements and drugs in the context of competition, you get a little bit worried about doing that all the time. Yeah. And then on the other side of the ledger here, you have the marathon and the ultra marathon where I've finished marathons and it's when you stop running at the end, especially if it's a warmer day, it's when you stop running that you start to get the nausea and to do with the blood rushing somewhere. Yeah, that's an interesting observation in terms of when you actually stop. For some people, it really kicks in. I think with longer distance events, there is more potential to actually choose different foods or change your behavior to reduce the chances of some of that stuff happening in the longer events. So one of the potential sources of nausea and many other GI symptoms actually is dehydration and lack of uh, climatization to heat stress, which you kind of mentioned on a hot day. And one of the reasons for that probably is with heavy exercise, blood is redistributed away from your gut to your skeletal muscles. Obviously, you need to supply your muscles with nutrients and oxygen to power your ability to, to actually get through the race. And then especially in a hot environment, you've got blood going to the skin. So the gut's just not a priority for your body for the most part during the prolonged stuff. And during marathons on a hot day, definitely you can build up a fluid deficit where the lack of blood flow to the gut becomes even more pronounced. There are good studies showing that if you take people and you have them exercise in a hot environment, pretty much every symptom goes up in severity, including nausea. So acclimatizing to the environment is going to be a big one. And then in a hot environment, making sure you're drinking enough fluid to avoid really huge levels of dehydration. But you also don't want to go overboard to the point where you're overhydrating. So it's kind of this nice middle of the road approach that's much not too little. Right. And I think the takeaway for all that stuff is you got to work with it for a while and figure out what works for you and in different environmental situations, right? Different intensities. So that training is important. Sweat rates vary dramatically depending on the environment and depending on on how hard you're working. Those are generally the two biggest determinants of how much you're sweating and then therefore how much you might want to drink. And just the faster you're moving, the more you're going to sweat. And obviously the hotter it is, the more humid it is, you typically sweat more as well. So the old school recommendations used to be kind of like drink four to six ounces every 20 minutes. I don't think very many nutritionists and dietitians say that anymore because hopefully they recognize sweat rates and fluid replacement are going to vary a lot depending on the situation. Yeah. And I mean, sweat rate is, a like you said, it varies depending on the situation. It's the humidity and the heat and the intensity, but also it's still good to have your baseline. So if you want to get a good baseline, that's always a good thing, right? Go way in, jump on the treadmill at room temperature, run medium effort for an hour, and that'll give you a good baseline. And it's going to be more or less depending. And then you do that in other environments and you kind of track that over maybe a few months to get a sense of, okay, in this environment, I sweat this much. In this environment, I sweat that much. You can at least have a general sense of if the weather turns out to be this on race day and I'm running at this pace, I have a general ballpark of how much I'm going to sweat. I mean, I think that's a good recommendation. Yeah. So I was entertained here with a flashback to sixth grade when I was reading the first chapter on the journey through the 
digestive system, right? Well, I can still quote that stuff from sixth grade with the <laughs> stolas and the and the pyloric valves and all that stuff. But what I thought was super interesting was the carbohydrate and the sodium levels in whatever's in your stomach control the chemical feedback loop that determines how fast it's going to progress through your intestinal tract. And I think I said that right. So basically, if you try to do this thing that people do where they feel like they're getting behind, so they cram in a whole bunch of gels, yeah. you throw off the solution in your stomach and that'll like shut down or speed up. It'll either give you diarrhea or it'll shut down you and you won't get the benefit of that. Right. Yeah. Right. So if you think about when an electronic system, the electronic signals will give you that control system, right? There goes up. So you turn the thermostat and that opens the valve, right? But in your body, you've got the same thing going on, but it's all chemical signals. So you have to be really careful what you eat determines those chemical signals. That's those a good way of putting it. And, and speed up or slow down the process. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice way of putting it. A lot of people think of the gut as just kind of this organ that contracts and physically breaks down your food and everything just kind of goes through at its own pace. But what I detail in the book, if people haven't had this information before in their schooling or they just forgot about it, is that it is a sensory organ as well. And especially in your small intestine, right after the stomach, the sensory tissue there is very important for regulating how quickly stuff leaves the stomach. And the reason why that's important for athletes is Number one, it's going to impact symptoms like reflux and fullness and, and nausea. And then also how quickly things get delivered to your small intestine. Because the small intestine is where pretty much all the absorption happens, where it actually gets pulled into your body. So kind of like you were saying, if things get plugged up and stuck in the stomach, especially during exercise, that's not going to be great when it comes to uh, your symptoms and how you feel. And you're also not getting the benefit of those nutrients actually getting into your body. Uh, you also yep. don't want to overload the small intestine with too much stuff because that can cause basically malabsorption or basically flooding of your intestines and that causes loose stools and diarrhea and, and gas and that sort of stuff. Your GI system is a, a very elegant system in terms of it tries to tightly regulate how quickly and how much carbohydrate and other energy containing nutrients leave the stomach so that you don't overload it, but also that it doesn't just sit there in your stomach like a brick. So yeah, it's an impressive organ to be honest. Yeah. And it just, again, my takeaway is that a lot of the messaging and the fad stuff focuses on one macronutrient or one action or one thing, drink this, drink a lot of this or eat this. And it's really complex, right? And it's almost less is more. I always see at these marathons of people with 16 gels strapped to their body like a machine gun bandolier. And I'm like, there is no way in a race you can eat or absorb that much sugar, right? Yeah, unless you're running for 10 hours, which at that point, yeah. if you're running that slow, you probably don't need all those gels to begin with. Um, yeah, it's like, but the theory is, right, if one's good, 10 must be 10 times as good, right? Yeah, I think you're getting to the point. It's, it's helpful to understand a little bit of the basics around the physiology of the gut, because if you understand what's happening with the stomach and the small intestine and how things are regulated, you would probably avoid, like you said, downing three gels in a row because you think that, well, I've kind of fallen behind in my nutrition intake here. It's getting towards the end of the race. I want to make sure that getting enough carbohydrate for the finish, you know, that's not the best strategy is to just chow down three gels in a row. So yeah, I, I think understanding the physiology is helpful for 
understanding where some of these problems come from. And that's why I spend a whole chapter on it in terms of a refresher for the anatomy and physiology. Try and make it fun and interesting as, as you can uh, with a book like this so that people aren't bored out of their mind. But it is helpful to understand the basics of the gut in terms of its anatomy and function. And it is athlete specific. I know very high level ultra runners who will eat three, 400 calories an hour. And they have no problem with that. And their bodies somehow figure out what to do with that. But the average person only needs 90 calories an hour. Maybe they can absorb, right? And the rest of it's coming from fat. Where The other thing people don't realize is we have so many fat calories in us. Somebody like me, I probably have an extra five or 10 pounds of fat, which is going to be, what, 100, 200,000 fat calories I can burn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, most, especially like middle of the road runners, those who aren't trying to set records or PR, if they're just looking to enjoy the race or finish, uh, yeah, to a large extent, you're burning fat. Some carbohydrate along the way is going to be maybe helpful for how you feel and maybe avoiding hitting a, a bonk or feeling really bad at the end of the race. But the carbohydrate needs are going to be dependent on the duration of the race and how competitive you are and what kind of athlete you are. Like you said, higher level athletes, ultra runners, in some cases, they're consuming 350 to 400 calories an hour on the high end. For the vast majority of runners and other endurance athletes, you probably don't need to be pushing that hard. Uh, and you're right, there's a huge amount of variability with how people respond to the same feeding regimen. I mean, in my own experience in the lab, you can have dramatically different responses where you'll feed people the same beverage and one person, no matter what you put into their stomach, they're fine. And then the other person, two or three ounces of a hypertonic beverage, and they're about ready to throw up off the treadmill. So uh, yeah, a lot of individual variability for sure. Yeah. So personally, I've had some nausea at the end of hot marathons, but I never had a problem with that. I was basically, I could eat anything. Uh, recently, as I get older, I tend to not have, I tend to shy away from the, the carbohydrates, you know, all the Gatorade and gels and stuff, and just try to run off of fat and uh, some simple carbohydrates and less of them, right? Try to work with my body that way. But I'll tell you, I threw up two years ago, first time in a race after 20 or 30 years, and it was at mile 75 of a hundred mile there. Sounds about right. <laughs> I'd never been that far before. And uh, yeah, that was something. It was almost like my body said, okay, you're done. Yeah. Studies from the Western States Endurance Run show that roughly like six in 10 runners get some amount of nausea. Now, not all those are like throw up level of severity, but I think it's about 40% uh, of finishers of that race say that gastrointestinal problems affected their performance. And the, the most common symptom that they say does that is nausea. So there's something about the really prolonged stuff, the single stage ultras, where it really induces a lot of nausea and, and, and vomiting in some cases. And I think it's just this mixture of environmental stress along with trying to fuel your body at the same time, plus the damage that happens to your muscles, and you get this secretion of breakdown products in your blood. So your, your blood's like this soup of hormones and muscle breakdown products that probably is triggering that vomiting center in your brain. And then there's the other things like motion disturbances that are understudied in the context of ultra exercise because you're running for an hour or excuse me, 100 miles or 50 miles or whatever it is. So there's just a lot of different sources potentially that are contributing to that nausea and vomiting and maybe why it's such a common issue for ultra runners in particular. Yeah. Yep. And I had, I was, I paced my buddy at uh, Leadville last year and he'll be listening to this, but uh, 
he threw up for the first time when I was pacing him, but yeah. we were at altitude, right? We were just yep. over Hope Pass. So he was deep in the race at altitude and he made the mistake of not mixing up his drink well enough at the aid mm-hmm. stage. So he got a big mouthful of almost pure sports mixture, right? <laughs> Powder. Yeah. Uh, and that did it for him. That put him yeah. on the edge. So that combination of things. Uh, yeah. For- That's a great example. You got the extreme duration, the altitude, which we know can cause nausea and then, you know, not necessarily doing the best thing with your nutrition or making a small mistake that turns into, you know, throwing up on the side of the trail. Yep. So as you were putting this together, you know, what did you come across that surprised you? Uh, That's a good question. I think what was surprising to me is I kind of started off thinking, how am I going to get a full book out of this topic? (laughs) Because thinking gut issues and athletes, that's a couple of chapters in a book or something like that. And it turned out basically the publisher is like, you need to cut down the page length here a little bit. So what maybe surprised me is just how much I was able to get into with the different possibilities when it comes to gut issues and athletes. And then the psychological aspect, I think not necessarily surprising, but it's something that's really underappreciated from the scientific perspective is how the gut and mind interact with respect to athletes. Now, we know there's a huge connection there, especially for people who have disorders like IBS and dyspepsia that's long established in the scientific literature. But for athletes, a couple of studies I've worked on in the last few years are showing and confirming that, but it's been kind of an underappreciated thing, at least in the scientific literature for athletes. So I basically spent a third of the book on that or a quarter of the book or so kind of on the psychological aspects of, of gut issues. Yeah, that's an interesting. And, and I was wondering as I was reading it, there's been a lot of recent, we won't go into this rat hole, but been a lot of recent um, research just on gut health versus um, mental health, right? Connection there. There's been a lot of research on that in the last few months even, right? And it's a two-way street. I mean, it's the things that you feel or the emotions that you have, those can impact how your gut feels. And then what you put into your gut can go back up the other way. So there's neurons and nerves that communicate from your gut back up to your brain. So that's kind of this bi-directional pathway that communicates from a top-down approach, but also from a bottom-up approach. So yeah, we're just starting to really understand some of those things, especially in the context of athletes and runners and distance athletes. So it's going to be, I think, something to pay attention to in the next five, 10 years as we start to learn more about that. Yeah. So that's what you learned. What for athletes who might be listening to this, what would you say are the top three takeaways? Number one is pay attention to the actual problems that you're experiencing and when you experience them. So actually maybe journal or record what are the specific symptoms, when did they occur, what were some of the things that happened beforehand, to start to try and understand for you individually what could be some of the possible triggers. And again, going back to that symptom by symptom approach, I think is really important as opposed to just saying, well, change your diet or take this supplement and you're going to be good to go. That's typically not how it's going to work. Beyond that, I do think that's especially for racing, and I know a lot of people aren't racing right now, but the tried and true recommendation to practice what you're going to use on race day is hugely important. And that not only means practice kind of the specific foods and beverages, but try and maybe mimic consuming the amounts and volumes you plan to consume in the environment that you expect to compete in. 
and not necessarily for the same duration, but at least for an hour, get a sense of what that feeling is going to be like in the environment that you expect to compete in as best you can. Yeah. Beyond that, I think employing or trying some psychologically based things for those athletes who struggle with anxiety and stress does have the potential to be quite helpful. So whether that be slow, deep breathing, meditation, mindfulness, I think for a subset of athletes, it's probably like 25, 30% who really struggle with anxiety and stress. That is probably one of the safest and most effective ways to help deal with some of these issues. So uh, I think a lot of other things an athlete can do, they have trade-offs, right? They maybe have some potential downsides. I see very, very few downsides to something like doing slow, deep breathing 10 minutes a day, five days a week. To me, there's little risk to that and only mostly upside. So it's hard to summarize everything from the book because there are a huge amount of practical recommendations I give, but uh, those are, I guess, three that come uh, to the top of my mind just in a moment here. So um, give us the where they can find it and what the launch schedule is. Sure. It's sold pretty much everywhere, but if you want to support the author, you can go to theathletesgut.com. Velopress.com also uh, is selling it. And if they want to follow me on uh, social media, I'm primarily on Twitter. I believe, let me double check my handle. I always have to do this at sportsrd underscore PhD if they want to keep track of what I'm up to on social media. Right. So that's good. That's good. Yeah, a lot of information here. And it's it's good. You um, did a good job of um, tableizing, if that's a word, everything, right? Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Everything out in a, here's a cheat sheet for you, sort of cause and effect. So um, that's great. The only thing that I didn't quite, I don't know, there's a couple of things that were weird in there. And I've read this before. The one is the pickle juice, right? Mm-hmm. They've tested the pickle juice and they know it just doesn't have enough time to get into your body. Yeah. It seems to help anyhow. So it's something about just the feel of it in your mouth triggers something in your brain. That's yeah. It's been strange to me. Yeah, there's some research that's been done on pickle juice. But even since that, there's now been a couple other studies with similar kind of substances or supplements that kind of have these spicy compounds in them. Think like ginger or the active component of a chili pepper. Capiscum. Yeah, yes. Thank you. And what they've shown is that if you kind of have people take these supplements or substances with these spicy compounds in them, and you try and have them induce a muscle cramp, either through like repeated calf raises or some other extreme exercise, that individuals with that supplement in comparison to kind of like a placebo type thing, the uh, time it takes for the cramp to come on actually is delayed uh, or maybe a little bit less severe. Now, it's not like a cure. It doesn't completely eliminate a cramp or reduce the severity by 100% in most cases. But there's actually now experimental evidence suggesting that there are some nutritional things you can do to lower the risk of, of muscle cramping. So for pickle juice, it's actually probably the vinegar that's activating sensors in the mouth that communicate with your nervous system that ultimately communicate with your muscle. Is the and t- tell your muscles to chill out, basically. Yes, pretty much. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so it's coming in the back door through the nervous system as opposed to being anything that you're digesting, which is fascinating. Correct. And like anecdotally, a lot of athletic trainers who use pickle juice say that it works pretty much almost immediately. So that argues that it's not because of the sodium. It's not because of things actually getting absorbed into your bloodstream. Not to say that it wouldn't maybe have an effect on other things later on, but right away, any effect on muscle cramping would be due to activation of 
sensory tissue in your mouth and your gastrointestinal tract. All right. Well, this has been great. Thank you very much for uh, letting me look at this and having a conversation. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Well, yeah, we'll move you to the uh, exit here and uh, ha- enjoy your 4th of July. You as well. Thank you. All right. We'll see ya. Okay. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Certainty in uncertain times. Certainty is a powerful leadership tool. When used wisely, it can create momentum and value. When used poorly, it can manipulate people into bad situations. So, a little story. (laughs) I was part of a couple of meetings over this past month that got me to thinking about the power of certainty. We've talked about having that positive intent when leading in a crisis. We've talked about bringing the energy last time. So certainty is another one of these tools that you can have in your toolbox and bring to bear. So in these meetings, we're discussing possible tools or solutions with some clients, some client executives. And the conversations seem to me to be going around in circles and never getting anywhere. And I realized that this was because the technical folks that I had on my side were not bringing certainty. So consultants, as a rule, will give you options. If you ask a question to a consultant, you will not get a yes or no answer. You will get a series of alternative answers, each with its pros and cons. Those multi-answers will be turned back onto the client, and the client will have to choose how to proceed, right? These are all your options. These are what we think the outcomes are. You choose. And I'm not dissing consultants. That's the job. I was a consultant. I love I love doing that. But salespeople, on the other hand, will give you a very direct path to follow. Fortunately or unfortunately, it's usually by this, uh, but it's simple and direct. And what I've observed in my 300-plus years in business is that clients don't want alternatives. They want to be told what to do. They want certainty. People hate uncertainty. They crave certainty. And that's not the same as variety. People like variety. They hate uncertainty. So that's part one of this lesson. If you want to get things done, Don't give people too many options. Do the work. Give them certainty. So part two of this lesson is that this loathing for uncertainty increases exponentially in uncertain times. Think of it this way. People are already having to deal with external uncertainties. They have uncertainty fatigue. They don't want to be given more uncertainty by you. They can't handle it. They are full up. In uncertain times, people literally crave certainty like a dying person in the desert craves water. As a leader, you need to not only bring the positive energy and the intent, you not only have to bring the energy, you have to bring certainty. And this can be hard because in uncertain times, you may not have all the answers. The correct response 
The intellectually honest response may actually be, I don't know. But you have to package that I don't know in certainty. Like, I don't know if there will be more layoffs, but I can guarantee that I'm personally committed to you and the success of this group. Bring the certainty. Be certain in the things you can control and be certain in your energy and your intent. The deeper the external uncertainty, the more desperate the people you work with and live with are for certainty. So bring that certainty. Be that life raft in the storm. And now, of course, there is a dark side to this. Lesson three is about the dark side. In times of uncertainty, people will flock to leaders who can project certainty. Unfortunately, this enables leaders with agendas to use uncertainty towards their own ends. It's nothing new. Periods of great uncertainty, plagues, droughts, economic hardship, revolutions, create fertile grounds for the rise of demagogues. When your average Joe hits that uncertainty fatigue point, they just want someone to take control and make it go away. Uncertainty gives rise to strongmen who promise to make everything normal again. Which leads, <laughs> as we lean into the Machiavellian here, which leads to lesson five, which is that if you can manufacture uncertainty, you can lead people, organizations, and populations to give up their power to that demagoguery. The fatal flaw in that progression is that you're not getting that power back. So for you, my caution is one, do not use your newfound knowledge of the power of certainty in uncertain times for evil, please. Use it to lead. How do you create certainty when you yourself don't know which alternative is the best option? You have to do the work. Play out the options of each alternative and ask the questions that matter. Is this the right choice for the organization, for the customer, for my people? Will this add value? Is this the right thing to do? And then you're going to do the hardest thing possible. You're going to make a decision. You're going to choose an alternative and you're going to lead down that path with certainty. Certainty of action, certainty of language, certainty of sentiment, and you're going to bring your energy and your passion. That's what you're going to do to lead. Because at the end of the day, many times, all of the alternatives are better than standing around waiting to be hit by a truck. You, your certainty and passion will move the herd to safety. The worst thing that can happen is you learn something, and then you adapt at the next intersection. And number two, be on the lookout for demagogues who try to take advantage of uncertainty fatigue to push the wrong path. Don't let people trade their power for certainty. That's a, that's a fool's bargain. And number three, be leery of those who will create or magnify the uncertainty just to create the very conditions that allow that manipulation. There's an old idiom that goes back into the, the 1600s, 1700s, but was famously quoted by Benjamin Franklin at the Constitutional Convention of 1776. Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. 
OK, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. OK, my friends, we have run clutching our side in gastrointestinal distress to the end of Run Run Live Podcast 4-435. So I registered for the virtual Boston Marathon for 2020. It was $50. And apparently, I was one of the first 15,000, so I get some sort of special super-secret care package mailed to my house from the BAA. So exciting. I have a plan. (laughs) I'm going to run my Boston as part of a 43-mile out and back on the Wapak Trail on September 7th. And I would love company if any of you are, uh, you know, crazy enough to come up. We're going to start at Watetic and run to the end of the Wapak Trail on the backside of Pakmanadnock, turn around and run back. This is the double of the race that I ran in the spring a couple of years ago. There's a race that is on this course, so no FT, no FTKs. This will probably take us about 10 to 12 hours. Uh, my friend Eric is coming up to join because he can't resist really stupid shit like this. <laughs> And I'll be able to wrangle some basic on-course hydration support, but probably nothing fancy. Since it's an out-and-back, you know, people want to come around and turn around at any point, they can. Uh, Just a little bit of a description here. This is not a dirt road. This is the Wapak Trail. The Wapak is typical New England mountain trail. Mostly single path, highly technical, Lots of elevation gain and loss, basically running the spine of a mountain rain. Uh, in September, the, the woods, the forest will be thick and shady, except where you break out onto the tops of the mountains. And the weather's a crapshoot, as it always is in New England. That time of year, you can get very hot days. Well, you know, hot for us, mid-80s. And you can get the tail end of hurricanes with cold rain. It's part of the fun. For the most part, it's very sheltered from the weather under the canopy, so that's never really that much of an issue. So that's that's what I'll be training for. That's my summer project. <laughs> All right. To take you out. I've been listening to uh, History of Ancient Egypt. And since we've been talking about bodily fluids, digestion, hydration, all that stuff, I have a story for you. Now, I would imagine... You are familiar with the electrolyte mix called Noon. Now, I can't prove it, but I would like to think that they base that name on the Egyptian creation myth. In the beginning, all that existed was the sacred water. The lifeless, sacred waters from which all things would be made, these waters were called Noon. And they were the waters of chaos and the waters of everything. And the first god, Atom, he created himself. He manifested himself from the noon. But then he got bored with being the only god around, so he decided to create some more gods and other stuff. You know, like all the rest of the stuff we have in this world. Now, Atom didn't have a partner to do anything procreative with, so he um, uh, handled the situation himself and fertilized the noon from which everything else came into being from this fertilization event. So think about that. 
the next time you take a big swig of that warm, sweet, cloudy noon at mile 40 of your ultra. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. To take you out, track number 14 from Brian Sheff, the rock opera by the nays called Bobby Lefebvre. <laughs> 